Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away, so it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. First off, what'd you guys think about that uh, that mountain lion meat from last night? Very good. Yeah, I thought it was delicious. Cougar meat. Yeah. Very even my, good. Even my mother-in-law ate it. Yeah. I I was surprised how tender it was. That recipe. Well, it's a it, you know the chef Jacques Pepin. Mm-hmm. I call him Jack oh. Pepin. Oh yeah. He uh, that's his little sauce. Well, Chinese what? Chinese five spice powder. Uh huh sauce but i like foopled it which is even more than quadrupling it and he just does he does it with pork uh-huh and just you know kind of braises it for a little teeny bit yeah. in the oven but i like with that cougar meat except for the loins that cougar meat you got to waylay it with some long cooking yeah because we did that that's just like a roast we did I mean? that loin for that one dinner and it was it was a little dry yeah we grilled it yeah and it was a little dry now the part of the loin that has the fat on it is different because the fat on the the lion fat is good, mm-hmm. real good. Yeah, I almost felt like between all the chunks that I had and I've eaten over the last year that the I didn't like the back strap as much. The loin you liked that roast last night, didn't you? Well, yeah, because it has just more fat incorporated yeah. in it. That was a fatty that, hunk that man. you're getting to use where that back strap is very, very lean, you know? And um, it's just like, no matter how you braise it or do whatever, if you braise a fatty piece of meat and you braise that lean loin, the lean loin still tastes drier. It's drier in your mouth, you know? You, you can stop it with sauce as much as you want, right? Yep, yep. It definitely benefited from that long, slow cook. Well, you'll notice that when, like, in my slow cooker... It was only the sauce in there, which is like five spice, Chinese five spice powder, soy, ketchup, ginger, garlic, 
sherry vinegar. That sauce only came up like a third the way on that roast, which is probably like a three-pound hunk of a lion's back leg. And I flipped it a couple times in there. Then the end mashed it up. Not mashed up, but broke it apart so that it all took a little bath toward the end so that it all had a little sauce bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. It's good, man. I like it. And then... um Impressions about squid. Well, you've squidded. Yeah, you've squidded I've been down there. Cal, times. first timer, first time squitter. Yeah, well, when you said you, scene. that was uh, Andy Radzilowski. Oh, haven't done intros yet. We're joined by Chef Andrew Radzilowski, who I have known for a bazillion <laughs> years. And real quick before we get to that, I want to touch on me and Andy's first wild game meal. Only yeah. kind of a wild game meal. We were having like a little party. <laughs> Back in the, probably around 1995, yeah, 1996, was. we were yep. throwing a party because we were living in the same sort of weird flop house. We were living in a house that had four people living in it, none of whom were on the lease. <laughs> like this house had a very, like a constantly evolving sort of cast of characters who lived there. Yeah, there's many people went through that place. Yeah. And we borrowed a pig roaster from my mom's neighbor, I think. Or was it? I yeah, think I borrowed it. Yeah, you did borrow it. I had to like drag it an hour to where we lived. And then we had, so we had a pit, like we were getting a whole pig. But then me and my brother were out fishing steelhead or salmon. Was it the fall? It was the fall. We were coming back from fishing salmon up on the Pier Marquette River. And the dude in front of us ran a deer over. He didn't want it. So we took the whole deer and then drove it a couple hours down to Grand Rapids cut the deer up in the garage and then sewed the whole deer with baling wire inside the pig. Yeah. And it came out phenomenal. Unbelievable, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like pork fat basted deer hunks. That was me and Poots. That must have been a pretty big uh, pig. Oh, it was a big pig. Yeah, we fit the whole deer in it. I can't remember we boned it. Like we boned a lot of it out. Yeah, it was in pieces, I think. Yeah. But we got most of it in there. Crammed in there, sewed it up with wire. But the funny thing is, is this all <laughs> happened right on the corner of a very busy intersection in the middle of Grand Rapids. Who yeah, like, was the instigator? With the party? With the the uh, pig turducken situation. <laughs> I don't know. We just had a... We were already cooking a pig, and then we picked up a roadkill deer. And well, That's the key to the situation, is having somebody who's like, yes, I will follow through with your stupid idea. <laughs> I have no recollection. Did, did we wrap something in hog wire too? Yeah. Or chicken wire? Did we roll that pig up in chicken wire? No, because it was in a roaster. I yeah. think we just put that chunked up deer in there and just sewed Bail- it yeah, shut. Sewed it shut with, with baling wire. And threw it in a roaster. What That's happened awesome. was. See, I want to tell the story, but I don't want to reveal my preferred alias that I use anytime I have to have a social media account. <laughs> So I can't reveal my preferred alias. Anyways, we heard that down, like in our neighborhood, we heard that you could block off your road in order to have a family reunion. Basically, we were trying to, we were trying to elude getting the party broken up by the cops. So we thought like, oh, we'll register as a family reunion. We just used the name from the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> but that never registered it anyways. Yeah. Just had our, yeah. So anyways, that, that yeah, I mean, that's how far... 
That's how far me and Andy go back. But you were going to say, yeah, so Andy is squidded because you're a Pacific Northwesterner. Yeah. Well, you've done, you've done a bit of squid For the last 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. Andy lives out on a lonely little island called San Juan Island <laughs> where he catches fish and cooks. And then uh, we'll touch on that some more. Cal, initial impressions of squid jigging? Loved it, man. I mean, the whole scene, like the whole Asian community down there just chain smoking away and uh, really extremely limited communication, even amongst us. And it's all about just like harvest and it's dark you know city sounds going around and ferries moving around get a contact buzz from cigarettes outside <laughs> yeah and uh, generator exhaust fumes yeah that little combo it was great man i loved it you, you were lucky because we kind of had a, had a translator last night there was you catch that was you know had some english no not, i've now and then had the privilege of sitting next to yeah most of the guys at jake squitter uh i did a story on this years ago for outside and most of the guys i interviewed well, in virtual, all the guys I interviewed were from Vietnam, born like born Vietnamese, Cambodia, Laos, and the Philippines tends to be. I think that crew where we were, I think that crew is is almost all Vietnamese that goes down there. I believe. So yeah, you don't get a lot of. It's hard to you kind of kind of hack your way through some communication. But now and then, I've been next to guys who speak pretty good English. Then you can sort of get the inside scoop. Well, I just don't, you know, like most little, like if I kept relating it to being on like a busy steelhead river. I mean, for the most part, generalization for sure, but for the most part, if you are willing to communicate with somebody, it is possible, um, but you're still not going to exchange information. It's like, oh, what kind of, what color, <laughs> whatever are you running? How far down are you? Most guys aren't going to, tell you exactly what they're you know consistently hooking up on and it'd be the same in the little fishing pier community that we were in last night uh but what's different there is you you're not allowed any personal space on the squid pier yeah yeah i was getting crowded out in that corner if you get (laughs) if you start tuning them people will i mean it's not measured in feet it's the, the amount of space you're given like where your line hits the water is given inches Yes. People will just drop in. I think too, though, the difference is that uh, you know, on a, in a steelhead hole, you might be looking at you know what a hundred fish if it's a lot in there, and a lot of yeah. times it could be a few. There, we're talking about thousands of yeah. squid, probably and tens, so, probably tens of thousands of squids. Really, yeah. you think it's that many? I mean, I no, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a pile of them. And you're, when they're in, water. when the when the school comes through, I mean, I mean, it's got to be. I mean, just looking at a quick, a few quick online photos of like you know, squid mating. It's yeah, okay, big globs. But yeah, I mean, and you're still like fi- fishing into the abyss, right? You have the, your big bright light, um, but that doesn't do anything for the angler's vision at all. It's like. You're just illuminating murky, you know, zero yeah. visibility water. Yeah, you're running like a 20,000 lumen light, but you still got to use a headlamp to tie a knot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, so I, it just, it's got all the, all the things I like about fishing, you know, lots of, lots of variables to figure out. 
um, but still tons of opportunities. So. I like the multicultural bent to it too because I spent my whole life fishing with dudes who look just about like me. Yeah. Well, yeah. No matter where I go, there I am. <laughs> you know, and it's like the fish with people who are coming uh, who have a completely different like American experience is nice, man. Yeah. And then when that dude hauled up the crab last night, I was kind of giving him the thumbs up. He He's was stoked. Like, everybody's, yeah. cheer, everybody's cheering this guy on. He <laughs> caught a rock crab on his squid. Well, he yeah. was special because he had caught a rock crab two nights in a row. Two nights in a row. Yeah. yeah. That was cool. Just the whole scene itself. Sometimes you kind of get lost a little bit. You're kind of focusing on looking down at that water and, and jigging. And then all of a sudden you look up and there's a jumbo jet going over. There's there's a ferry. You kind of forget that you're right in that whole crazy downtown city. And we bumped into like the two business guys. Yeah. Older business guys on the way out. Yeah. Like, well, how'd you guys do? And then there's the fancy bar across the street. And it's like nobody in there. Yeah, don't don't say too much because that, that little... There's All a right. lot of well-known, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a little, like, I kind of like it. Yeah, for sure. And I have noticed mugs out on the piers that I feel like weren't out on the piers that long ago. Okay, I got you. Like, I'm, I'm afraid of, a, from talking about it too much, that you you could, I feel as though that you could instigate a demographic shift. For sure. An unwelcome demographic shift. For sure. Out there. That's where your staying power would come into play. What do you mean? I think folks are like, yeah, this sounds great, and just dip their toe in. Mm. You'll get real frustrated. Real fast, yeah. Yeah. You got to do a lot of jigging before you start kind of getting the basics. I mean, unless you got someone standing there giving you the what's up, you could show up and just be kind of like, what am, what's not happening here? Because squid don't hit. Squid, uh, it's not a hit. Fondle. They fondle. Uh, fingering. <laughs> they fondle. They, and it's not a hook. It's a what You're impaling the squid on wires, and he doesn't hit. He's, he's down there fondling, toying with the thing. But super fun. And because of all your guys' knowledge, I felt like a, a squid jigging pro in about 40 minutes, you know? Oh, no. Yesterday, it was a big... I think I've been out four or five times prior to last night. And yesterday was a much different uh, feel for being part of the Steve Rinella's squid jigging crew. You I mean, broke through, yeah. Yeah, it, it, that's what it felt like. It's like, okay. Steve, and Steve had told me he'd sort of had a breakthrough a couple weeks ago. He caught like 49 in an hour with the two kids. Yeah, that's with two kids, which is like, Less good than you do by one person, <laughs> right? You know, that's like a that's not like three rods in the water. That's like point seven five rods in the water, right? Yeah, I think the first time I went out, I didn't catch any, and the dude right next to me was just one after another pulling them out, and it yeah, it can be frustrating. Dude, it makes you want to snap your rod yeah. over your knee and yeah. throw it in the water. It's like and how? leave. <laughs> and I look, look at his jig, almost exact same setup, and it's like, how is this guy just pulling one after another, and I'm just sitting here. Because he knows when a squid's <laughs> looking at his jig. Yeah, yeah true. He's not, that's what I was saying about like walleye last night, how they don't so much hit is look at it. Yeah. Like that, he just like, I'm st- like I understand it more and more all yeah. the time. And I, lo- I, I got to see the flip side of the coin last night where when we were packing up, like a big part of that peer community came over. They were looking in our buckets to see exactly how we did, and then they were looking at the jigs. Mm-hmm. 
It was and the I first just, time I've ever been a, the subject of envy. <laughs> the first time I've ever been the subject of envy on a squid beer. You can see it on their faces being like, yep, that jig is no different than mine. Yeah. Like, I just, that's, I love that part of it. Yeah, it was just, it was like a 180 from the last few times. Like, there's like, nobody's paying attention to us. We're just watching everybody else catch squid after squid after squid. And this time, the gal walks up, looks in her bucket. She looks at me and she's like, ah, seven pounds, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that aspect of it, man. I like, I like flying low out there under the radar. But Yanni, last thing I want to talk about, this is something that you brought up to me that really breaks my heart. Um, you're saying that like... Well, it's because you haven't let me explain myself yet. Well, I'm giving you a chance now. Can I, can I tee it up? Yeah. Yanni found out that you can buy frozen squid for about four fifty a pound and now like squid jigging less. No, I didn't say less. Yeah. You, you put that word in my mouth. I just said it changed, you know, like my, my sort of perspective about it. Because that's, you know, one thing that I enjoy, I think about whether it's fishing, hunting, whatever, you're sort of out there getting things that maybe not everybody can put their hands on. Right? You like the exclusivity. Yeah. And it makes it special. Yeah. Like when you're out fishing spot prawns and those things are 40 bucks a pound. Mm-hmm. Or what's a king salmon going for nowadays? Yeah. You'd spend a lot of money. I don't know. I mean, you think about the marketing that goes in, into uh, like the Copper River. I mean, that stuff comes out at what? Fifty, sixty dollars a pound when it first when the season sits. It's unbelievable. You like that? You like either that people can't get it, like with mountain lion. If you want to eat some mountain lion, either got to get it or have a buddy who right. It's hard to find. Yeah. But Joe Blow, anybody, any kind of that's the thing with saltwater fishing though. Freshwater fishing, you're catching a lot of fish that there's no way to go get it. Like there's no way you there's no commercial way to get it. Yeah, unless you're Great Lakes. It depends on the species. So, yeah, you could be fishing lake whitefish, which you can get. You can get walleye. You can get rainbow trout. You can get lake perch. Depend, you know. And then there's all the aquaculture fish. But there are a shitload of species that you can't go by. Morel mushrooms would be kind of somewhere in between. In between. You can buy them. That's another thing. You can buy it, right? Yeah. So there's things that, there's game meats, like lion being a great example. There's many more, moose, you know, that you can't purchase. There's no way to go buy it. Then you have, yeah, illegal. Just, there's no commercial market for it. So there's that. Then there's the stuff that anyone could go buy, and when you catch it, and you're like, holy shit, I just caught a $500 fish that feels pretty good. Like, if you go catch a 30-pound king, you got a valuable fish. Or a 100-pound halibut is a valuable fish. Then there's stuff that you go catch, which is a lot of ocean fish, that's like really not that expensive and pretty widely available. I don't think about it too much. Would I prefer that squid were worth 100 bucks a pound? Sure. Hmm. Why not? It would probably attract attention, though. Then it might, it might be attention. the reason why you can walk down there every night and find a spot on the fishing piers because they don't have that much value. Because even if you get a limit, when you get a limit, but here's the thing, frozen squid, if you get a, li- a limit, 10 pounds. So you could feasibly walk down, and if you got the time to put in and you're good at it, you could walk down, and every time you walk off the pier, you're walking off with a fresh version 
of something that has a commercial value of less than 50 bucks if you get a limit. What's a limit of squirrels worth? Can't sell squirrel. There's no commercially right. available squirrel, but what would a limit of squirrels really be worth? If you rolled up to a guy and said, hey, man, I got five squirrels, what do you give me for them? Well, people, don't have, people haven't had assigned a very high value to it. They should. They don't know any better. So you're really not going to get very far unless, so you, unless you ran into me. <laughs> and you like, wouldn't want to buy some other guy's squirrels. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, you know, I know that when I did some uh, bartering back in the day, some trading. Before you realized it was illegal? Yeah. With elk meat, I mean, I put a very high value on that. I mean, $100 a pound. You do know it's illegal to barter elk yeah. meat. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it anymore. Now I just give it away. But I think what the Yeah, you give. It's like, like, it's hard to define, right? Yeah. Because I'll, for instance, I recently said to my brother, who really missed, because he lives in Alaska, he really misses panfish. They don't have panfish. So, because we fish a lot of perch, I said, hey, man, when you come down for Christmas, bring a cooler, because I froze you a huge block of perch fillets. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm bringing a cooler anyways, because I'm bringing down a bunch of king salmon for you. Now, I don't imagine someone's going to kick my door down and arrest me. And no. there's not like, a, I never said to him, I'll give you X and you'll give me X. It's just that like a, there's like a sharing, a type of sharing that goes on, but I think you can't formalize it. Yeah, we should look into that. Yeah, it, it's just so odd because, I mean, this is stuff I do all the time. But the funny thing is, is invariably, like the circle that I trade amongst, we also end up eating at the same dinner table. With you a lot eat, of those you eat it together, and you eat it <laughs> yeah. together, anyways. Yeah, like, yeah. I'll give them the purge, and then we'll eat the purge together. Right. But if there's no money exchange, is it is it still illegal? You can't actually. Yeah, you can't go. You know, someone just recently sent me. I feel like it's probably a. I feel like it's probably a thing put on a sting operation. But someone just recently sent me a Craigslist ad where some guy's like, "Hey, we only eat wild game. I'm willing to pay." Four fifty a pound for deer elk. If there's any hunters out there that would like to sell their game meat, it could it could be legit or it could be a sting. But someone sent me a screen grab of the the, the ad. But that's a purchase. I've yeah. been solicited that way. But it is a, it's like you can't you, you can't engage in bartering, which I imagine the definition the, the definition has to be some sort of formal arrangement. I, I I got a buddy one time that was coming back from shrimping. And there was a guy, it was like a, it was a crowded pier. He's coming back from shrimping. And there was a guy that was coming back from Lincoln. And my buddy said, so he doesn't know this guy. My buddy says, hey, man, I'll trade you some shrimp for one of those Lincoln fillets. And there happened to be an undercover game warden on the pier. Didn't find him, but says, you most definitely will not. Oh, I find that hard to believe that that's that's it's a, that's a stone. formal. It's yeah. like a sale. He's like making a sale, but it's, with no money exchanged. How is how is it goods and services? Sale? Yeah, yeah. You're like doing a thing, but me saying to my bro, uh, "Oh, hey, I froze you up a thing of perch," and he's like, "Oh, sweet." You know, funny you mention that because I froze you up some kings. Like I'm not like my giving him the perch isn't dependent on him giving me the thing. And we had, we're not a formal relation. It's just like an understanding that you like are generous and share. Yeah. That's, that seems blurred. So, so if I came well, down with, with a flail yeah, link and said, 
Steve, let's eat this link out. And on my way out, you said, oh, here's an extra neck roast. Take that with you. There's no problem with that. You giving me something, me giving you something. Yeah. But it's different than a dude showing up on a pier and saying to a guy he doesn't know, yeah. I will make a formal trade with you. Because if the guy says, if the guy says, hey, you know, I'll take some shrimp, but I don't want to give you my lingcod filet, then I guess he just gave the guy some shrimp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like, I think it's a slippery slope because yeah. it's like, okay, yeah, so we allowed the lingcod shrimp trade, you know? Well, the next time maybe he doesn't have any lingcod, so he's like, well, I'll just give you 20 bucks or you, yeah. come, you can come by my oil shop and I'll, you know, change your oil or, you know, and all of a sudden, you get to a place where you're basically selling the wildlife. Now, friends of mine in Alaska who are subsistence, who live in subsistence areas, they're allowed to barter. Hmm. Yeah, they can barter. In a subsistence area, you can use fish. You can use wild-caught, subsistence-caught fish to do formal bartering. Do you know about if you can do it with big game? I don't know if they're allowed to do it. I don't know if they're allowed to do it with big game. And that that fully extends to like the goods and services realm. Yeah, you can use it as currency. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Service my boat motor, and I'll give you. A, you know, I haven't motor. read. Uh, I haven't. I haven't like gone and read. I, I should clarify that this is coming from someone who is deeply familiar with the system. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and that was his explanation to me. But I don't want to stand here and, and say that I've like thoroughly read it and explored the whole thing. I'm just kind of conveying like what he explained yeah. to me about it. I want to <clears throat> clarify too that it's um, knowing that squid has no value. It's not going to. It doesn't. It has a great value. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, uh, like that you can just go and buy it, you know, for a cheap price at a store. It's not going to change my enthusiasm when I make it and serve it to other people and share it. All right, let's do this. I'll calamari, be very, very excited. Calamari menu. I want to find out. That'd be a good little project for you, Yanni, as I move things along. What does it cost to buy calamari in a restaurant? A calamari appetizer. Eight to 12 bucks. Oh. There you go. And it only takes a calamari appetizer in a restaurant is two squid, Probably. two or three squid. Three would be, a, and again, depending on the size of squid, but three, I feel like, would be a heaping bowl. So last night we had 40 appetizers worth of squid. So I, I can't even begin to do that level of math. We, were, we were ripping <laughs> beaks. What do you think the cost is? I'm about for- ready to move, I just as a warning. Like, I give my kids five-minute warnings when it's time to like, leave the <laughs> playground. I'm about ready to move on. I I just, no, go ahead, go ahead. Five-minute warning. <laughs> I'm just about ready to move so on. That's roughly <laughs> five hundred bucks worth of calamari plates. All right, so there you go. Cal, go ahead. Andrew, what would you say? Like your standard, like breaded, fried calamari appetizer would would cost to produce from the restaurant side, or like your, you know, simmered, sautéed with some peppers calamari appetizer. Well, really, yeah. I mean, it's really low cost because you think about. Just the appetizer where you're getting the breaded, fried, and a little bit of sauce on the side. I mean, there's nothing to it but the squid, a couple cents worth of flour or cornmeal or whatever crust they're going to put on it, and, you know, a tablespoon of mayonnaise, and that's, you're talking, you know. It's good markup. Yeah, real good markup. Uh, you're, you're, uh, can we plug your catering place? Uh, sure, sure. 
Well, you could, yeah, you could plug anything you want. Island Time. On Island Time Catering. On Island Time which does a disservice because you're the most punctual, fast, efficient yeah, person yeah. I know. It is. It is. A, but it's spelled tricky. T-H-Y-M-E. Yeah. <laughs> a delicious fun. <laughs> a delicious fun. So any listeners out there, and what's your range? What's your zone? Uh, you know, mostly San Juan Island, but I also do have a DBA as, as my own Chef Andy, which I do a lot of more small mobile. detailed yeah mobile stuff yeah. obviously i've done some traveling with you and done some other events in and around so we'll come back around and replug you later yeah um all right what else oh another thing i want to get to before the main thing we want to get to we're kind of already on subject we're actually on subject definitely but go into oh talk about something for a minute yanni oh boy <laughs> oh how about the uh can I talk about the tour demand tool? That's what I'm trying to talk oh, about. Oh, that's what right you're now. trying to talk about. Yeah, hit it. Um, now, we interrupt this for an announcement from Yanni. We are going to do a. Do we know how many stops? Roughly 10, maybe? Yeah, man. Yeah, around, not somewhere eight, the 8 to 10 range. 8 to 10 live for, for podcast now, events um, in the next year. Is that safe to say? Yeah. Um, all across the United States, but we don't know where to go. Steve and I had a list going of places we thought we should go, and then we thought, well, it'd probably be better to ask people. To impose some rationale into it. Mm-hmm. On it. Instead of just being like, yeah, it seems like a place where a lot of dudes <clears throat> live. <laughs> yeah, and because we'd fight about it. I just kept saying, we got to go to Pennsylvania. They got millions of hunters. Steve's like, nah, nobody's going to come to Pennsylvania. So... <laughs> Now, if you're in Pennsylvania and you're like, bullshit, we could fill, a, we could fill a, a theater full of people. You can go to, Steve, you got it up? No, I'm having connectivity issues. Mm. We're going to have a, uh, it's called the, a tour demand tool. Yes. And we're going to embed it across uh, all of our social channels, platforms. You'll be able to find it there. And basically go on there and you're just going to have to type in like, I don't even know if it requires your name, but basically your zip code. Zip code and email. Zip code and email. And um, then we'll open up a dialogue with you. Yeah. And you no, want, you, just pick, you just request <laughs> your zip code. And you want to get all your buddies to do it too if they live in and around your area because whoever gets basically the most votes, that's where we're going to end up. Yeah, this is not like screwing around. This is like how we're actually figuring out where to go. Yeah. And it looks cool, too. It's a really easy little thing. Yeah. By saying you want us there, you're basically saying, yeah, I'd buy a ticket to go to the event. What size theaters are you guys looking at? A few hundred folks. Mm. We, did one, we did one in Bozeman. How many seats were in Bozeman? 440, I believe. Yeah. That sold out a couple weeks before it happened. Mm. So you folks got to get on this if you're going to do it. When it happens, you got to strike fast. Or as Yanni says, you got to. Uh, be on the dance. What, what was the thing you were talking about yesterday? Being on the <laughs> opportunity dances <laughs> with those on the dance floor. Yeah, that's right. Okay, now to get back on subject, D- uh, you know what, my brother Matt and Pooter, you've been hanging out with Matt for twenty years. Yeah. You know what, Matt's my brother Matt's favorite uh, recipe is right now. His favorite wild game recipe. <laughs> <laughs> I need to like set the stage a little bit about Matt. <laughs> Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. 
because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. Oh, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any trucker van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. No, I won't. I'll just let this speak for itself. Matt, when he butchers a deer, do you know about this? His new thing he likes to eat? Uh, no. Okay. When Matt butchers a deer, he saves all the scrap. So, like, the tallow, mm-hmm. tendon, silver skin. And kind of throws a rough mince on it and saves it in a little, like, when you open his cupboards, he say it, like, every butter tub or cream cheese container that guy has ever generated. Coffee. Anything he has. He's just like, 
He's got a large area of his kitchen that's dedicated to just him where he throws any sort of little tub. I think he actually bought, he probably grocery shops based on those the containers. tub size. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of out of this. <laughs> I, can use a tub like I don't that. need any butter this week. <laughs> well, I'll get some margarine because it's got comes in that. Because that's the kind of tub I like. When we when I was over there, we came back from that turkey hunt, and somebody had snuck by and put three garbage bags full of Folgers uh, containers <laughs> in his kitchen. <laughs> he loves containers yeah. and tubs. So one of the things he does with his containers and tubs is he freezes scrap. Deer scrap. Because he like his dog likes to eat it. So when he goes to feed his dog, he'll take one of these little tubs, frozen just a scrap in it, and just add a little water to it and put it in his microwave for a bunch of minutes. Oh, but, but did you say what originally those tubs were for? Butter and coffee and cream no, cheese. No, 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 no. Why he was making them. Yeah, for his dog. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, you're, yeah, you're doing notes. something else. So... Because then he'll microwave it like to oblivion or until it turns into like it's something that would have an industrial application if you needed something like like an organic type of rubber. Yeah. Right? And he gives it to his dog, Shifty, on its food. Well, I don't know how it happened, but, but he one day just must have been hungry or whatever. And now <laughs> that's what he likes to have. And that's how he likes to fix it. Ooh. So... <laughs> His deer, he's now like, the thing he likes to eat is the tallow, tendon, and silver skin and blood clots <laughs> microwaved in little tubs that he then likes he to He must just, salt it, at least. I, I think he does put salt on it. Yeah, and that's, th- his, that's his hot tip. Yeah, I think the microwaving in the tub is really what pulls that dish together. <laughs> that's his hot tip. Infuse a little plastic. Ooh, yeah. yeah. My latest hot tip. Here's my cooking hot tip. And this is hard to replicate. But I recently had a mule deer buck tenderloin that I seared in a pan and then so just browned it on all sides. Rubbed it with salt and pepper. Seared it in a pan. So I browned it on all sides and stuck it in a 400 degree oven for not long enough. So that when I pulled it out like, I don't have any reason to think this, but my ki- I feed my kids a lot of like really extremely rare meat, mm-hmm. which I used to worry that something bad would happen to them, but if they've been alive long enough now or something bad was going to happen to them, it would have happened to them by now. But anyways, I still sometimes will cut into a piece of meat and I'll be like, my God, that is raw. You know? Can I interrupt? But then they eat it and they're fine. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to ask, like from, from a professional chef's perspective is there anything like at what point can something like that get dangerous like raw meat because i think that's probably in a lot of people's well i think minds. you guys have the most experience with that as far as the bear i mean you know yeah, but me, I sure, no, but my, my worries go yeah with venison no large game you could eat it raw you know what i mean but yeah. that's my concern is it parasites yeah my concern is just that there's that it's like could be potentially be hard for their system right a two-year-old yeah but you got to work and experiment, you know? But it doesn't phase them. Because I think because they've just been eating the whole time. I remember my brother had this girlfriend who was vegetarian for a long time. And then one day we shot a deer and she ate a whole bunch of rare deer meat. It was puking her brains out mm. because it's just like... Shocked her system. Shocked her system. So that's my concern more than other things. Yeah. But anyways, then I wrapped this thing up, what was left of it. Wrapped it up saran wrap and left it in my fridge for like a week 
Then there's a sandwich shop called Mean Sandwich. And they have a habanero sauce. And somehow, one of, I don't really know how, I haven't like checked with everyone in my family yet to understand how this happened. But one of their containers of habanero sauce ended up in my fridge. It's like a thinking man's Frank's Red Hot. Buttery. Mm-hmm. So I took my raw deer meat, my mostly raw week old deer meat back out, cut it in slices, melted a bunch of butter in a pan, recooked it all over again in that butter, dredged it in that habanero sauce that I found, and that was the best thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. Hard to replicate. It's a lot of steps. Yeah. And it involves you going to mean sandwich. <laughs> and time. I mean, if you're going to... And it allows let you to it, let, let it age. To have a thing kind of cooked in your fridge under plastic wrap for seven days. The best thing I ever ate. Wow. That's my hot tip. So you got not, a hot tip from Matt, really which is spicy. microwave. No, I'm not. Like I said, it's a thinking man's habanero sauce, though. Spicy. Too spicy for my kids. My two-year-old insisted that I give him some, and he declared it spicy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my hot tip. Poot, what's your, hot, like what's your hot tip? Hot tip. Poot's tips. Well, I, I should clarify that Andy, uh, while it's not his name, he has never once introduced himself as such as widely known as Poot. <laughs> so if I say Pooter, that's who I'm talking about, <laughs> is Andrew. I like that style, though, when you take that, uh, that back strap or tenderloin like that and sear it on the outside and have that rare bit in the middle, but then pan sear that later. Because is that a thing? I thought I invented that the other night. No, but it just it reminds <laughs> me of, like, of taking like a... Uh, you know, like a roast beef, like a raw or no medium rare roast beef, but then turning that into like a steak sandwich. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah, hit that yeah. hot in a pan with the onions and peppers, and the flavor that then comes out of that. I think is I I love that. Yeah. I'm a sandwich guy though. You um, like you oh, like making sandwiches? Love sandwiches. you familiar with mean like, sandwiches? Nope. Where's that at? Over in Ballard. No, uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, good sauce. Hmm. Give me another hot tip, Poot. That one didn't count. Hot tip. Well, I we were kind of talking about earlier, um, just in the in the the way of uh, is bringing it back a little bit, but the way that things are handled and processed along the way, you know what I mean. I over the years of hanging out with you guys and then seeing the way that things have evolved, especially up at the shack. You think about how kind of crude it was at the beginning; things were just kind of getting right off the flay table, wrapped in a saran wrap and whacked in the freezer. And to see that evolution of... Um, the, the introduction of more expensive stuff. Correct. <laughs> and I think just a general care, you know, like your brother Danny's just meticulous on his flays, you know, and yeah. you can always tell the difference. But I think that translates down the line so well from the way that it's handled, A, when it comes like right out of the water or obviously an animal that you put down on the ground. And every step that's taken, if, if there's care that goes into every little step, I think the end result is leaps and abounds above adds up. everything. Um, yeah, because like a wrong move dealing with fish, like a couple wrong moves can really put you in a bad spot. Yeah, yeah. And when you pull that out of the freezer and it, you have a, a, a piece of meat that's just absolutely pristine, it's just like, I don't know, to me, it's like it's it's like Christmas, you know, to be able to 
pull that out and not be like, ooh, well, we got to cut this away. We got to, you know, it it elevates everything along the way, I think. We were down and we were down fishing blue catfish in Kentucky. We went to this guy's house and, and, that, and up until we started hanging out, we went down and spent a bunch of time in Kentucky uh, jogging, limb lining. What else? Trot lining. Yeah, those three. Jugging, limb lining, and trot lining for channels, flats, and blues. Mm. Turtles. And, and turtles. And I'd always liked to fish catfish, but I never understood. And I knew that there was catfish that you put it in your mouth, and it was like, oh, my God, is that bad? And there was catfish you put in your mouth. It's like, wow, that's great. I never realized that the, that what you're, the difference between those two things is fat. Mm-hmm. That catfish fat tastes horrible. And we went down with a guy who catches... I want to say probably thousands of pounds of catfish a year. Oh yeah, because we had easy because we had in the hundreds, maybe we had twenty some catfish that day. Not hundreds. We had a lot of catfish. Maybe not a hundred pounds of fillets. No, no, like like live weight. You know, I think we had in the seventies for live weight. Bunch of guys fishing. Either way, the guy cleans a lot of catfish. And to watch this guy, uh. He just fishes blue catfish with jugs. But to watch this guy go through his cleaning process and how meticulous and fastidious and like this is the way you do it, you don't do it that way, and his setup and how carefully he defats those flays. And then he'd take all that pieced up meat and put it in a wheelbarrow with a hose in it and would just stare at it and stare at it and stare at it, watching for any little wisps of oil they would be floating on the surface. And what he would go through to get it where he's like, now that's ready to eat. And that's the difference between good catfish and bad catfish. Yeah. There's well, a guy like that. I think you should follow that up with that we sort of had a, uh, you know, an impromptu, you know, like a check on that the other day when we were cooking catfish. Oh, yeah. It's that little strip of dark. On the belly, right? That's it's that, and there's that. orange fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the there's the bloodline, which they're real careful about getting rid of. And then there's fat. And the other day, we had some catfish, a huge catfish. We we're just like trying to test the catfish recipe and had a big piece of catfish. And I didn't defat it. I kind of like half-ass defatted it. And ugh, that mud. And, and it was store-bought. Yeah. And I think that kind of tripped us up because we just figured, ah, store-bought. It's been well taken care of. You know, not so much. We kind of took that same approach when <clears throat> we were fishing those shovel nose um, sturgeon up, yeah. up at the Yellowstone, and they kind of have that same. And we we're kind of watching videos, and they said it's really important that you make sure you clean it all the way down to the white meat. And so we were kind of, you know, taking our time removing, and we did a little tester, and it, you could taste the difference. Oh yeah, and I found it too. Even like a, on there's certain species, salmon. It's weird because salmon. Why are king salmon so popular? Yeah, because of the fat. Because the fat's so great on them. Yeah. You know, it was, well, I mean, it's a lot of, like, I why is domestic pork fat real tasty, but deer fat is not? Mm. So king salmon, people like, like them because they're fatty. When we've butchered sharks, like lemon sharks, you got to get all that fat off. Hmm. Or else it tastes nasty. So real careful. Is what you're saying. Yeah. 
And then your brother Matt took all those little pieces, put them in, put them in a tub, put them in a microwave, in a cre- yeah, <laughs> microwave those in a cream cheese tub for five minutes, <laughs> and turns them back into gold. Yanni, what's your uh, what's your hot tip? Ooh, um, I wasn't ready for this. Really? Um, hot tip, Cal, you got one? Come back to me. Um, I got I got one. I, I real consistently get complimented on. Uh, on anything involving the morel mushroom is I like to, so I dry all my mushrooms um, and then you have to reconstitute them to cook with them. And I guess you don't have to, but I do. And so they sit in a bowl of water for, you know, 24 hours in the fridge and then I'll pull those mushrooms out, um, snip them in half with kitchen shears give them a rinse again in the same water, let that calm down, pull those mushrooms out and kind of give them a light little squeeze to drain that water back in there. And then I'll um, strain the water, the liquid, the reconstituted, the liquid that I used to reconstitute the mushrooms. Yep. And then I just use that as mushroom stock for whatever sauce or the roast that I'm cooking with the mushrooms and I, man, it it makes a difference. Are you familiar though with the school of thought that you should never ever wash? Yes, a wild mushroom. But those people don't deal with mushrooms out of burns. Well, morels just with the gills on the outside. They are in their hollow on the inside, so they're yeah. like natural bug homes, worm homes. Yeah, and, I'd always read that yeah. about how you shouldn't rinse them, and you see it in all kinds of places. Like use a gentle brush. That might be true if you're, depending on where, if you're like picking morels in some kind of like real grassy river bottom area where it's the nice mat of grass and he's like living there in a dust free environment. And you found him that day and there was like a nice dew on the grass or something. Yeah. I've spent more time eating morels that I didn't wash because you're not supposed to wash them and having a miserable time wondering about like what's going to happen to my teeth. Yeah. From the grit that i'm eating because even if you I, and i'm just especially when i'm cooking for other folks i'm real gentle with them because i want them want them to be pretty um it's impossible to clean those things yeah like you will never get every stitch of dirt i soak them suckers. i think they, they're hardy enough you know they're not like morels yeah to get not, the grit not like a shaggy man that's just going to dissolve it's a it's it's hardy enough to to hold up to to why well, i usually soak them for a while fresh just to get just, them clean. Just to rinse them. Yeah. My bro one time was picking them. He was out trying to pick them for sale. He had a commercial permit in a big burn. You know, they'll mm-hmm. open up like commercial harvesting. Just, just to clarify. So just for listeners, uh, mushrooms have like like a like a, a mycorrhizal. Is that I saying the word right? Mycorrhiza. There's a there's an underground the, the mycelium or something like that. Mycelium. The mycelium. A, a mushroom has an underground structure. So when you see a mushroom pop up, this isn't a good perfect analogy, but just think about it like this: when, when a mushroom pops up, you're seeing the apple of an apple tree. But in the mushroom's case, it's not a, you know it's not the same thing as a plant, but it's fungi. But what you're seeing is the macro fructation, the fruiting body of a very large underground network of mycelia. I think it's, yeah, mycelium. Mycelium, yeah. A big structure that's like 
imagine as this tree-like underground structure that puts off a fruit. Um, when we talk about morels after forest fires, there's something that happens that's not well understood. That the underground structure of the morel is, is there. It's like omnipresent. It's just down there. And something about the action of the fire. It might be that it stresses that whole system out and it's like, holy hell, we got to get out of here. Yeah. And it cr- and they will all of a sudden crank out. You could have scorched earth. Yes. Moon dust. And the following, well, it could happen different times. Generally, if it burns one summer, so it burns in August, the following April, May, June, depending on elevation, latitude, and other factors, all of a sudden, in the right place, it's just a bonanza where, whap, it is carpeted in morels. That is the difference between mushroom hunting and mushroom harvesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And guys that commercially harvest morels will often, that, that's where commercially harvested morels are coming out of, oftentimes, is out of big burns. Where you can go and pick like 100 pounds of morels. Now, my bro one time picked a bunch, fixing to sell, and he'd pick them after a rain. And his entire pick was rejected for how gritty. Too much ash. Wow. Can't get them clean. Hmm. So he then had his tub supply got maxed because he then had <laughs> like everything possible. He was like drying morels nonstop, and then we ate gritty mushrooms for. And, and I've done like a, a pretty damned abusive cleaning process on these before, and and I think the the right way to do it lies somewhere in the middle. Like it, it's amazing how much that mushroom gets beaten up, and when you're finally draining your wash tub, bucket, tub, whatever, how much mushroom is on the bottom there and residue down there with all the ash. And, and every third morel you open up has a, a roly-poly in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, they're buggy, they're dirty, but... Man, they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> buggy. Hey, Yanni, will you, uh, will you type up... I just want to get people square. Type up mycelium and mycorrhiza. Mycelium being M Y C E L I U M. Mycorrhiza being M Y C H. You'll figure it out. Now, I, I've been told that there is hardly a surface out there that doesn't have a morel spore on it. I've seen them come up in some crazy places. Yeah. Did you see those studies they've done where they've gone in, like they go into a school where you have like a building with tons of small rooms and multi floors on it? And they'll go in with a. You go in with a mushroom and walk down the hall and then wait some period of time and then go in and test the air and the, the spores. Yeah. No. The spore, like, yeah, like a mushroom hmm. spore. There's a thing that like a lot of mushroom hunters be like, oh, you can only carry your mushrooms in a basket, not a bag, because you need to make sure the spores are getting out and being distributed. Yeah. That, that. But people say the spores are omnipresent. Yeah, they're everywhere. And it's multiple, multiple, multiple generations that are, um, the way I've been told now is, you know, they are, uh, the mushroom hunters, they are where they are type deal. They're just waiting for that combination of heat, but not too much heat, moisture, but not too much moisture, disturbance, but not too much disturbance to create that little micro climate that they like yeah when, yeah. You're, when you're hunting you're going to your spots like yeah. i've been hunting they just put for, off all the time that 
I know over 20 years, I know every year there'll be a mushroom in that same spot. Yeah, and over you just got to be over. there on the right day. And it is, yeah. yeah. You watch the weather, you wait for that perfect soil condition, and then you go out there and boom, there they are. And I've had cool. a couple times where I moved, where I moved away from an area and then very ceremoniously passed along my morel spots. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'd do that. I, I mean, those are, yeah, there's certain things that I just cannot part with. I'm like, you just want it to be that. I'd rather no one picked. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly <laughs> I'd rather right. they rotted into the ground. It is <laughs> so hard to find them sometimes. But one cool experiment um, for folks that are into picking mushrooms is if, you know, you get your mushrooms home, you lay them out on a big screen, um, and you start that drying process, they will, and it must be somewhat forcibly discharge those spores on the screen. And so, um, you know, if you have like a dark window screen, um, you remove that mushroom and then you look and it leaves a really beautiful spore print. design mm. of spores on there. And I always thought somebody much more artsy than me could probably make something cool. Well, that's a, di- that's a diagnostic tool for ID and mushrooms. It is, yeah. Is you take a spore print because you look at a mushroom, you're like, that's some bitch, a mushroom is brown. But you'll be reading like, you try to go like, so is it the, is it the good one that looks like that or the poison one that looks like that? And it'll say the good one that looks like that will throw a purple spore print. The poison one that looks like that will throw a yellow spore print. And you lay that thing out on a white piece of paper and get a spore print. You look at it like, I don't know how it's brown, but that's got a yellow. There's a yellow mark on that paper. Idea. I've only been poisoned by mushrooms one time. Um, was it a real deal or was it just gastrointestinal kinda... upset? Okay. So like wild mushrooms have two, a, a mycologist, which is a, you know, like a, a mycologist is a mushroom biologist. A mycologist might hear this and be like, that's not right. But this is, I can tell you, I can guarantee you that this is kind of right. There's mushroom toxins that are neurotoxins. Okay. That mess with your head, like eating shrooms, right? That'd be like a neurotoxin. And then there's mushroom toxins that just like screw you up your digestive tract, right? So the, they mess your brain up or they mess your gut up. I got messed up by the gut kind and it was eating queen bleats while caribou hunting. And I'd eaten a million queen bleats in the lower 48, not a million, but quite a handful. And then we were eating them up there. And then I later learned from a mycologist who was saying, you know, it's a thing that a lot of people who can eat queen bleats wind up being intolerant of the queen bleats on the Arctic Slope. Hmm. Whoa. Some difference about them. There's a mushroom that is highly toxic unless a caribou or reindeer eats it. Then you can drink that reindeer's piss and trip. <laughs> Let's take it into the extreme. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah it's one of the, it's like, uh, it's like the fly Garrick or one of the related to that. It's like when you're watching a cartoon and there's a mushroom, it's a red mushroom with white spots on it that's like present in all cart. It's like the classic poison mushroom mushroom, which grow right near my house. There's, there's some of those. Most falls, there's some of those about 150 yards from here. A white mushroom, a red mushroom with white spots out like in the Smurfs stuff, that's the mushroom. Yeah, but if a a reindeer eats it and you drink his piss you'll trip not that i've done it but it's a it's a thing that siberian herders do it's 
tripping, wild group tripping of guys. In the bo- yeah, tripping in the boreal forest. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you find out, Yanni? Have you done your research? Yeah. The, you just want a definition of the two? Yeah, because I, 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 I... Mycelium is the vegetative part of a fungus or fungus-like bacterial colony. Okay. Consisting of a mass of branching thread-like hyphae. That's who's living under the ground. Yeah. Mycorrhizal, is that, is that a term for the relationship? Yes. Symbiotic association between a fungus and the roots of a vascular host plant. Yeah, because like morels. They have, that's right. Now it's come back to me. Morels have a mycorrhizal relationship with, say, tulip popper, poplars in Virginia, elm trees near where I used to live, cottonwoods, aspens. Must be ponderosa pines. Apple, I, yeah. I found some underneath some ponderosa. Apple orchards in some places. And you might have none of these things growing in your yard and haul in some wood chips. And then all of a sudden realize you had some morels pop out of your wood chips. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen. Yeah. When I was a tree surgeon. Where, Interesting. Because, yeah. yeah, people do that now, right? Like they bring in half rotten logs in special locations. Doug Dern and, does that. Yeah. Now, uh, Not for morels, but he does it a quality difference and this is something we've tested out thoroughly between what we refer to as natural morels which are non fire producing morels okay yeah and your fire morels now your fire morels typically um overabundance bonanza abundance uh the year after the fire and then they decline rapidly sometimes from what i've seen fall off the face of the earth they're just not the, ne- there. the next year the next year yeah now you you have your annual spots where uh if the conditions are right they'll produce every single year the big giant yellows morcella esculenta even if they're small or blonde or black the the wall of the mushroom seems to just be meteor gotcha and man those things there's a uh that's something I've noticed but never thought about. You're right. I never like correlated it to location, but somewhere else just have a wall on them. I, I got one about the size of a uh, perfect size of a good high walled saute pan. And uh, one mushroom. One mushroom. Wow. And uh, did. A, How big is a saute pan? This was uh, probably a 14. Holy shit. Yeah. You ever see the back of Mushrooms Demystified? The morels the dude's holding on the back of that book? Yeah. Head size morels, man. Oh. So, uh, but I smoked this thing with the smoked smoked octopus, elk Italian sausage, spicy, and like a nice, you know, mirepoix, probably carrots and some celery and stuff, and, and baked that baby for a little while, and topped her off some mushroom sauce or some uh tomato sauce and tough to beat man but cutting through that thing the point here is it is a steak yeah yeah you're like woo. (laughs) you know it fights back against the knife it's great no cal talk us through your um talk us through your tongue preparation um are you guys gonna cover this in the yeah new cookbook yeah we talk about tongues in there good good Every, but I know you're like a big tongue man. Every day. Hey, is that a recipe that you share? Yeah, it is. Oh, it is. Maybe it, you could share it with me and then I can share it with the rest of the world. Yeah. Why can't he just tell us right now how he likes to cook game tongues? 
We he can do that as well, but it's hard to then replicate that. People are dying to know. I get questions every single day. Hey, got a tongue? You guys talk me into taking tongue. You guys, not what, what I do, do I do? Not what I do with this damn thing? Yeah, exactly. So uh, the quick version is: is I prefer a pressure cooker. I'll pile a bunch of tongues in there, let it roll on high for like twenty minutes. Can you back up? Yeah. Uh, at what point do you think a tongue is worth messing with? I take them all, even out of like a white tail, little belt. tiny white tails. That mountain goat this year. All right. Take them all. Any old tongue. Yeah. I may not, I know I am not as picky as some folks. And you speed cut it where you open up the bottom of the jaw. Yep. Pull it out. Yeah, it's almost out of like uh, Scarface, right? Yeah, it almost wants to come out. Yeah, so you'd you'd cut along the inside uh, line of the jaw uh, and then you can kind of reach up there and hook it and then you're cutting at the back of the trachea and... And the rest is pretty explanatory. It's disturbing how fast you can get a tongue out. It is. You like to think that your tongue's in there better than it is. Yes. Now, if your critter has frozen, like if you chucked her in the back of the truck and it froze overnight, then you have to be more careful because there's a good chance you're going to cut through a portion of your tongue and then you're, you got to kind of cook it right away because the nice thing is they're all self-contained. So um, the peeling part is... You wash it. Uh, you wash it. Pressure... I like the pressure cooker, but you can just boil it also. Just flat ass, like, that's it. You're not brining it ahead of time. You're just Not not for the way I like to cook it. No, please. That's, all, yeah. that's what I'm trying to find um, out. And then uh, I'll take it just like a pepper and throw it in the freezer, uh, like paper bag, throw it in the freezer, and then you start working on your sauce, uh, which chopped up a bunch of... Back up. Just like a pepper. I got that part. You're not, for, for my likings, you're not spending enough time on what it is you're doing by pressure cooking and boiling it. Okay. And or boiling it. So basically, you, your tongue has, um, and that's true, your tongue, everybody's tongue, has this rind on the outside, a skin. Yeah. Um, the meat on the inside is nice and fatty, uh, which is probably why I like it so much. And by um, boiling it, um, you are getting... Uh, that skin to kind of release, I, I I would think, and then to get it where it slips off. Yeah, and then if you chuck that thing in the freezer, um, for reasons unknown to me, it separates really easy, like finger peel with zero meat loss. Yeah, because mm. you don't want that. But the t- the tip. It's difficult. The tip is difficult, and it can be triaged, and that's where, like, your small white tail tongues, um, the kind of the chucking it in the freezer for twenty minutes is kind of critical because you get too much meat loss if it sticks to that. Yeah, yeah. If you have to like use a knife to shave it, that's what I found. So, like, if I'll simmer it for three to four hours, depending on how big the tongue is, and I just keep checking by jabbing a fork into the base. Yeah. And then I throw mine in an ice water bath. Yeah. Same result? You know, it just it varies so much. It does. Like, I was with a buddy of mine, a, a chef. You remember that? Have you met uh, Matt Weingarten, mm-hmm. that chef? I was watching him do nine veal tongues one time. And the outer skin on a veal tongue is not well adhered to the tongue like it is on a game animal. Because he just, like, simmer them for two hours, throw them in an ice water bath, and it was like taking someone's shoe off. Yeah. The skin was just like, whoop, gone. I'm like, dude, that ain't 
anything like what I've experienced because I'll boil them for three to four hours and then I'll be able to get the base of the tongue slipped off, but then I'm in there with a paring knife working away on the tip. Yeah. Because just you're getting that outer skin layer off. And and maybe in subconsciously that's why I would kind of wait till Thanksgiving or Christmas when I've because if I help pack some somebody's critter out of the woods for them, um, you know I'd typically have an abundance of meat, but everybody's like, hey, do you want a quarter off this thing? I'm like, yeah, just give me the tongue. Yeah, right? it's got to where people fight over the tongues. I know. I was talking to Remy Warren and got an elk. He got an elk. And I was like, you know, and it was the, he was like, go ahead and grab what you want off the elk. And I could like grab myself up and I grabbed the tongue. He's like, oh, no, not that. <laughs> I don't care. He's like, I don't care about the tenderloins and back straps. Don't take the tongue. <laughs> Man, it's, it's the real deal. So um, then while this meat, your tongues are in the freezer. I uh, work on the sauce, uh, which my buddy Jim Chardelli, this is mom's uh, Creole sauce is what he calls it. Um, but it's uh, chopped green olives, pimentos, garlic, red wine, black pepper, mm. uh, and crushed canned tomatoes. So oh, well, should I just get tomatoes? No. Get canned tomatoes. Yeah, th- that that school of thought bugs me. When people are like down on you for using, it's just different. Yeah, it's just like it's just different. It's helpful sometimes. Yeah, but I, I don't know if is it. It's super helpful, but is it like a uh, coming out of the depression thing? I, I, I don't know. Like, no, just use canned tomatoes. Pooter, are you prejudiced against canned tomatoes? No, I use them all the time. You do? Yeah. I mean, there's an application for them. I mean. Yeah, they're they're processed to the point where you want to put them into a sauce, you know. Yeah, so uh, get this sauce kind of simmering, uh, you know, with the, enough liquid and and uh, I, I also use my uh, reconstituted morels and the the juice accompanying that, uh, and then I'll pull the tongues out. I'll peel the tongues. Uh, chop the tongues into, you know, about, you know, your uh, thumbnail size pieces, maybe a little bit bigger, and just let that simmer. Uh, and then I'll fry polenta. I'll just get the, you know, the tubes of polenta that you see at the store. Yep. Cut them into rounds and give them a nice little fry. And then, uh, and crock pot's perfect for this too. Um, but, you know, take, you know, sauce and a couple of chunks and make sure there's morel in there and stack it up all nice on that polenta and a little bit of parsley on top. And it's fantastic. Love it. That's the tone. Sounds good. I, I mean, it's my, it is a meal I look forward to every year. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. 
So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. And, and it's simple. I mean, it's not... It's not, it's not kitchen magic, right? What I've been doing, like, I tend to smoke them. There's a lot of quizzical, kind of real questioning, raised eyebrows for our listeners here. Really staring me down. No, <laughs> not at all. What's I, I like this. this. <laughs> I just didn't know that's what you're doing with the tongues. I like it. Okay. Yeah, we've been li- hearing about it for years, about your fancy uh, tongue dish, but I don't know if you'd ever explain it to us. Yeah. I'd put it more on, like, the peasant side of things, right? Yeah. Dish, yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's like traditionally, but you know in the old days, it was they were so valuable that you it would warrant people to go out and hunt buffalo just for the tongues. Cause you could get a couple bucks for the tongue, and they, you could get a dollar or two for the tongue, which is huge them? money back then. They were pickling them, right? They pickle them, and pack them in barrels of salt, and ship them east just packed in salt, salt packed. And then was it like a bar food or? Yeah, pickled tongue and smoked tongue. Okay. Yeah. 
and they would, they would pack them they would pack them in salt barrels one time there was a there's a case where there's a in the historical account there's a case where a group of sioux hunters near the junction of the i think they were near the junction where the yellowstone flows into the missouri which i think it was fort union sits there where the yellowstone river hits the missouri in north dakota i think that's fort union and a group of Sioux hunters killed 5,000 buffalo near the fort and just sold the tongues out of them because it was valuable. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot of cases like that. I, you know, I do have to say, like, my eastern Montana family, um, they weren't... They were, I, I made uh, this tongue as an appetizer for the whole, you know, whole clan uh, last Christmas. And the kind of the older generation was pretty skeptical because every single person there was like ranch family. Once they made it sound like once a week, it was just kind of on the rotation. There, there would be a beef tongue that had been uh, brined into pastrami, and it was beef tongue sandwiches once a week. And they were not super jacked to be eating tongue. But that's, they did, that's they did what like I mean. I basically make a pastrami with the tongues. And, I mean, that's got to be good, right? I There's love it. I love there, it. Yeah. But that's what I stole from Matt Weingart. I think what's surprising about it is just the texture. When it's handled right, how tender it actually oh. is. Oh. It yeah. just falls apart. You know? Yeah. And when you cut it, it's got like a weird uh, mosaic of like white and red. Mm-hmm. Cool pattern. Yeah, a couple couple years back when you did, uh, we did Thanksgiving at your place and we had maybe three or four tongues that I think you had brined and smoked. Yeah. And they were just phenomenal. Really good. I brine them. Why well, like cure them yeah. with a dry brine and I vac seal them in a bag with the dry brine. Do you cure them with the sheath on? Yep. Take the whole damn tongue, scrub it with a scrub brush, have a cure, salt, sugar, and seasonings, and vac seal it into the, in with the dry cure and throw it in my fridge for a week or two mm-hmm. and just flip it now and then in the vac sealed bag because the liquid settles and you flip it and the liquid settles. Then... I smoke it for a long time. Then I braise it to peel the skin. Hmm. And then that liquid that you braise it in winds up being amazing. Yeah. It's like a smoked stock. Yeah. That, then I slipped the There's tin. a lot of fat in there. Oh, it's yeah. A lot, a lot of fat in there. Yeah. yeah. That uh, moose tongue that uh, uh, we got up in BC, I stole your moose tongue from, from that one on the river trip. Uh, that I threw in the pressure cooker, let cool completely, like cold, cold, uh, peeled it, sliced it super thin, olive oil, salt, pepper. And a moose tongue's a big tongue. That thing disappeared. About six people took that thing down. (laughs) Yeah, it's a three-pound tongue. Yeah, and it was, I mean, just phenomenal. But it was just cold, good olive oil, salt, pepper, it's fantastic. All right, I'm going to walk folks through on how to do deer ribs. It's like it's very important because people don't understand this. I was one time down in South Carolina, and we took a deer to a deer processor. Or No, we didn't. We just went, we dropped by a deer processor in South Carolina. And this guy, as he's like admitting deer into his processing plant, skins them and takes a sawzall. And cuts the rib rack right off and throws it out with the feet. (laughs) 
like not even going to look at it. A processor. I don't know if there's uh you call me a liar? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm adding to your story. I just think that I don't know if there's a processor in our country that deals with venison ribs. Really? And I don't even think that I'm I'm saying that with just deboning them for the grind pile. I mean, I live near one and I see the mountain of carcasses. Those they're all ribs intact. Really? And it's mostly elk, you know. Elk ribs. So anyways, t- okay, here's what you should do with your deer ribs. If you don't do this, you're stupid. Take skin the deer. You get you got the deer to skin it. And eventually you got where you got there's the deer laying there and he's got his ribs on him. And because you already gutted him, you already split the sternum. So go down along the spine with a saw and cut the ribs free along the spine so that you wind up with a Fred Flintstone rib rack. We'll put up a picture with the show notes. We'll put up a picture of pictures of how to do this, of what I'm talking about. Take that rib rack. And then saw, if you're talking about a general a standard issue whitetail deer, saw that rib rack into three long strips where you're cutting crossbone. Is this making sense? Yep. And you're going to wind up with three strips of what looks like pork ribs from a restaurant. Yeah. And what you did the other day that was slick that I hadn't seen is you rolled the ribs into... Before sawing them. Yeah. Yeah. You could take that whole rib rack and you have the... Mat, you, it might not make sense listening to me, but once you're doing it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Depending on how you cut this whole thing. You can take the rib rack and just roll it up. Like a river rafting table. What do they call those tables? Roll top tables? Roll a table. Roll yeah. time industries. Roll it up like a river rafting table. The good folks and then brought your roll of cock. saw it. So you're cutting cross bone. You're going to wind up with three long strips, 10, 11 ribs, in pieces that are about six inches long. Five, six inches long, depending on the size of the deer. Then you cut those down into pieces that have three, two or three ribs per piece. So you have two or three ribs that are six inches long, connected by all the meat that was over and under them. Let me back up. If it's a particularly fatty deer, take a boning knife and cut away as much of the tallow as you can. Am I missing anything else, Yanni? No. No. Do all that. Cut them up. Well, unless you want to mention, I guess, what I was thinking about is when you're cutting it off the carcass, you sort of end up with having the, like, where there's almost like a 90-degree turn of bone at the top end going to the spine. Yeah. It doesn't really have a lot of meat on it. But there's a seam in there. There's a seam, and that's really where you should be cutting. So it's not quite right against the spine. If you're real crafty and good with a knife, you can cut it. There's a joint. There's like a joint in the rib. It doesn't look like it, but it's there. And you can actually cut it with a knife if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But... Just the sawzall is fine, too. Yeah. And then on the bottom edge, you're sort of dealing with where it joins into the... Sternum. Sternum. And there's a joint there. If you know what you're doing, you can cut that with a knife. But I'm trying not to get people intimidated. Hmm. Well, I'm just saying yeah. you might run into this, so you can just saw it off, too. Yeah. Like, right now, like, I'm playing rhythm guitar, and Yanni is soloing off of the rhythm, right? I was, like, telling you the basic outline, and Yanni's adding texture. So keep doing that. All right. But you're cool up so far. I'm great. Now, take these things, and if you have a pressure cooker, so now you got all these blocks of ribs that look like what you'd get if you order ribs in a restaurant. If you have a pressure cooker, take these things and put them in your pressure cooker. 
and put an inch or two of water in your pressure cooker with them and pressure cook them at 10 pounds of pressure for 20 minutes. Now, do you, do you put any rub on that beforehand? Not yet. Not yet. You can, but I don't think it's necessary. Okay. I don't think it's necessary at this point. Straight up water out of the faucet. And if you don't have a pressure cooker. Put them in a slow cooker. Crock pot or slow cooker. If you don't have one of those, put it in a Dutch oven or some kind of oven safe receptacle. Cover them up in water and put them in your oven or put them in your slow cooker and cook them for three hours until they're fork tender. You want to cook them until this happens. Until you could imagine just stripping them off the bone with your fingers. If you wait until it just naturally happens, it's too late. You got to get them at the point where you can handle it, where you could grab a little chunk of the, because the meat retracts and leaves little bone ends out there. You want it at the point where you could grab one of those bone ends and lift the whole thing up and have it not fall apart. But that if you wanted to tear it apart, you could. That is the moment to strike. In a pressure cooker, that moment lasts for minutes. In a, in a slow cooker, that moment lasts for a long time. Yeah. That's a, that's a large window to shoot for. Well, we did some the other day, and I want to say it was right at four hours, three and a half, four hours, and we felt like, how did we not caught it right then and there? We had a lot of other stuff going on, and so we checked them. We're like, oh, it's fork tender right now. But they were at the far end of, of fork tender. Yeah. They were getting ready to start falling off the bone. And you'll notice, too, that you've rendered a lot of that tallow out because of the, the liquid, the surface of the liquid is going to be very oily. And that's now, really my question here is, and where I get tripped up and, and end up just saying, screw it and cooking the whole thing is... Cooking what whole thing? The ribs. Like, I, I just, it's not even worth trimming off any fat because I can't get to all the fat, right? Because there's so many anyways. layers in there, right? Yeah. And that's that's why I'm just saying, like, do it a yeah. rough once-over. Yeah. And I don't know why I do a rough once-over, but just it's easy to do. Gotcha. So you're saying you just render it out anyways. Because some of the fat's all right if it's hot. The next step, pull them out of the liquid and lay them on a tray. And let them dry a little bit. Drain off and dry. Now you hit them with your favorite dry rub. Right? Then... You walk over to your grill, your outdoor grill, and you throw them on your outdoor grill, and all you're really doing is warming them up and putting a little char on them. They're already cooked and ready to eat. And you take a mop, you take a half cup of cider vinegar, a half cup of yellow mustard, mix that up, throw them on your grill, and baste them with the vinegar cider the, the vinegar mustard mop until they just start to char up and get all nice and warm and then you eat them and you will never discard another rib the rest of your life and you will hate the man that does <laughs> love it even call him Dude, stupid. It, it's so <laughs> yeah you will call him stupid and hate him <laughs> now i, I is have, that good i have left some deer ribs in the woods just the uh they're each you've said it before you know it, every animal uh wild game animal is is its own beast it's different and i've the deer uh deer i got this year like that was a giant the rib 
section alone was a ton of meat and that definitely came out with me but you know montana you know end very end of the season some buck that's just been rutting like crazy and that rib meat looks like jerky about it's almost done jerky and there's nothing on the outside of it right yeah yeah there's no i don't think there's any state where you like like all the states have most states have what's called salvage requirements or want and waste laws um and they spell out for you what you need to keep yeah when i first moved to idaho you had to keep the rib meat is that right and you had to keep the neck meat and then they changed that law and you know myself and my group of buddies that i hunt with were just wickedly pissed just because that that is phenomenal eating i think a general salvage requirement should be much stricter I think they should be spelled out. It's fun. I love to read them because of how specific some states are. I think generally they should be more. I think it generally be good for hunters, good for hunting, and good for public perception to have much stricter salvage requirements. Yeah, the optics of it would be good. One day, this happened a million years ago, but one day I was really upset about some things that I had seen other hunters do and was really upset. And me and Yanni were driving down the road. You remember this? Yeah. And we look, and there's an elk gut pile laying out in a field. Mm-hmm. And I'm all mad about oh, something. But you had to preface this that we were talking about um, you're upset, and you're like, yeah, this is just not right. This is, it's, I forget what you were upset about. Maybe, was it just some guys like were, were flock shooting elk or some something? Guys like had got, we, some guys had gotten onto a herd of elk and were using text messaging where it's not allowed. We're using text messaging to like coordinate efforts on a herd of elk. Right. And uh, somehow that guy, we got to talking about taking stuff out of the field and you were like, yeah, my dad, you know, and this, that, and the other, we took everything out. Like my dad had to go check other gut pile, other dudes' gut piles to get the heart. Yeah. And I'm and saying liver. like, well, like I didn't grow up that way. Even though I grew up hunting a lot, like I didn't grow up. Like nobody taught me like, and plus, we like just dropped our deer off at the processor. But like, I didn't know about shanks and neck meat and hearts and livers. And sure, we ate like heart and liver like one night, and that was usually the night of opener in Wisconsin. We'd have like a meal of that, but that was it. Like if I shot a deer some other time of year, like it just that didn't come home with yeah. us. So, anyways, yeah, we're driving down the road. We see a gut pile, and I jump out all in the huff and go running out in the field to go get the heart. And the heart's gone. Because you're like, I guarantee those sons of bitches left it out here. Yeah, and the guy had the heart. And, I ju- and then yeah. the guy had taken the heart, and then I got back in all back in a good mood. Nobody would hunt that way. And be a heart man. Right. But then I was like, yeah, those guys are all right. I got, uh, got in a little debate with my uncle about that particular instance. Uh, oh, the and, one I'm talking about. Yeah. And he uh, was like, you know, people got to eat. That's getting groceries. Bruh, bruh, bruh. And I said, yeah, but because of the use of illegal communication, I feel that the the scale just tipped way out out of whack, right? It just went way too far to the hunter's advantage uh, versus the game's advantage, and that's just not the way the system's supposed to operate. And in that location, it's not open to your individual interpretation because it's just against the law. True. Like it or not, yep. that state has made that not legal. Yep. L- listening to this, it's like it. It seems like more hunters need to make the connection to the 
food end of it to elevate that because you're talking about the the tongue and the neck and the shank and the ribs and these things most people are just discarding this which if you know how to take care of that it's some of the best eating some of the best stuff you know and it's is it just because a lot of hunters just want to grind sausage and want burger meat is it it does it need to come an education of how to take care of those cuts and make them so delicious to eat i mean it seems I like, it, yeah i think education is a big part of it and was I think it game warden telling you or me about how uh in, this is in montana uh but he, he said you know three years ago uh not he never saw deer come through check stations that still had shanks and what happened to him they'd leave him in the field yeah. yeah but now he's he feels like almost no shanks get left in the field i had a i had a game warden mm-hmm. from a western state come up to me and 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 she's like i feel that because of your show i honestly feel that because of your show i see better field care how cool is that oh yeah. Well, yeah that's it i mean that's the end goal right and she said i feel like it's been a market difference that's awesome to begin like having conversations about this stuff it but comes guess, down to work though yeah it's work well, i mean it. you're like when you're talking about the difference between what i used to do to get an elk out of the woods and what i do now like more weight on your back more time spent at the mm-hmm. carcass, you know, more time spent at the butchering table at home. Like, it just... Yeah. You'd be surprised how many people are, like, picky little kids, though. My kids aren't that way. My kids aren't picky little kids. But a lot of grown-ups are just, like, squeamish, picky eaters. Mm. Like, their parents indulged that when they were a kid or something. And now they're like, you know, I'm not going to eat that. Like, they honestly sound like that. Yeah. My kids so, are kind of mad when I bring home little four or five inch ribs off like the, like if you cut the rib slab in, into thirds and stuff, they like it if I just like leave it, the whole thing whole. <laughs> like that, they just have such a more enjoyable dinner when they just have like the giant bone in hand and they're I gnawing and pulling. They love it. Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's that. It's like being like a little picky squeamish person. And what he just said about laziness. I mean, I guess it, it's extra work. It's just, you think if you were out there in that whole experience that you would just try and get every little ounce out of it, but I guess not everybody's wired like that, huh? No, and then there's the other thing, too. It's just, like, hard to learn how to do it. So yeah. it's really, but here's the thing. If you become a good hunter, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to be a good hunter. Yeah. So if you have it in your brain to become a good hunter, which is extremely difficult, you definitely have it in your brain to learn how to do, like, a handful of procedures on how to cook. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But... You're right. You you see, and it's funny because hunting, like, you can't divorce hunting from its roots. Hunting is a, like, hunting owes its history, owes its inception to the fact that it was a food-gathering method. Correct. It's like a food-gathering strategy. And still today, if you go hunt with, you know, certain indigenous cultures, they have no, absolutely no waste in certain, you know, depending. Right. That's, a, that's a blanket statement. There's also cases where people have driven off you know 800 buffalo off a cliff and then butchered a dozen of them and then the rest rotted because they probably were surprised as well that 800 went over there they were just hoping to get a couple so i mean there's like there's times when that's not the case but like generally it's like food acquisition and wide utilization when we spent time down in south america they don't flay fish 
they cook fish whole and suck every bone. Mm-hmm. So when they're done, there's a little teeny pile of glistening bones laying there. That's amazing. Head, every single thing, right? Honey, like, takes its heritage from that, but at some point in time, in some people's minds, it got, like, divorced from food acquisition. Yeah. I'll talk to guys, be like, big-time hunter guys, I know they got a bunch of meat in the freezer, and you talk to them, they're cooking something different. Boneless, skinless chicken breast, because it fits into my workout routine. I'm like, I'm like you of all people, but you of all people are cooking chicken tonight. Four or five bucks in the freezer. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, where are you at, Pooter, on your... Uh, would you prefer I call you Andrew for this? Sorry about that. <laughs> you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> what? Because, I mean, I definitely got into food. Uh, I, I, really, the separation between just enjoying eating food and actually cooking my own food uh, because a, a combination of single parent home and and having game meat in the freezer so i was like i could eat something out of a can or i could dig something out of the freezer right mm-hmm. uh but you you told me today that you haven't been or you very limited on the big game hunting side of things yeah yeah i did not grow up hunting um but food was a big part of kind of growing up and and, and family holidays and that so I, that's kind of the route that i got into food but um the experiences that i've had with hunting are with mostly with the ronellas and and, and this kind of crew which i learned kind of later you know probably in my late 20s i kind of started getting into with you guys um and that experience was just first being out you know in the in the wilderness and and, and having that whole experience i did was just over the top but for me, the, the second that animal got down on the ground, it just I, it just excited me so much to, to be able to see it start to come apart. And instantly in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I can see that, that loin. I can see that rump roast. And in preparations in my mind and the people that I was going to share it with, I mean, that was the most exhilarating thing to me that drew me into it is, is the fact that I can go do this on my own and then be able to turn it into something pretty good and then to be able to share it with everybody else i think that's really what drew me in yeah i don't think you ever saw it as anything even like with fish not that you not that you don't enjoy fishing but i feel like for you the link the food yeah the the fishing hunting food link it, it was never like a thing that you sort of like discovered later yeah it's like i don't like with you i feel like you always viewed it as a food thing Big time, big time. Uh, but the experience that comes along with it is just like the, the biggest bonus there is because it's, you know, it's an amazing experience to get out there. Um, but, yeah, with fishing, I, I you know, I have friends that, that fish and that don't really like to eat fish that much. And it, I'm like, well, why are you out there, you know? Uh, I always want to say, I think there's a guy I know that I've met him a couple times. I, I heard about this aspect of someone else, but he's a duck hunting fool. You know, I think he hunts 40, 50 d- days every duck season, will not eat a duck. Hmm. But to his credit, he's cultivated like a, a large group of people um, in a, he, he's cultivated a lot of friends in an immigrant community near where he lives who love duck. Hmm. And that's, that's cool. a thing that he does. Sure. He, he, he 
is very careful about getting the ducks, getting them gutted, and bringing them to the people that he knows mm-hmm. want the meat and use it well. Yeah. But I just wonder, like, how could it be, like, what gets you up in the morning? Yeah. Well, I mean, look at fly fishing. I hate to harp on, the, on, on fly, yeah, what? fly fishermen, but, like, thousands of trout caught by some of these folks every summer. And no one's eating them. <laughs> for the most part, no. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, so he gets out in the morning and does it. But I kind of think also it's like he's probably bringing like a cl- a, gr- a class of food. He he's bringing like a, a class of food to someone who might not be able to afford that food. We got another friend down in South Texas who has a network of people that he brings wild pig to, mm-hmm. and he said to us, "If I wasn't bringing them pig, they're not eating meat." Well. Not just wild pig, but the, wasn't all those does that he has to Some shoot venison off too. The, that might have been. Yeah, range. and I remember him saying, this isn't like that they prefer this over the stuff they buy in the store. He's like, it's this or it's not. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is hard to argue with. Mm-hmm. And the fact, just like going down, you know, to, to the fish market and looking at that piece of halibut and knowing if I want two pounds of halibut to have a few friends over for the night that I'm going to be paying, you know, Upwards of $100. I mean, I know you spend the money and the gas and lure and all that, but it's, man, it's just so much more rewarding and enjoyable to be able to have that kind of quantity to to share. You no, know? it's the most rewarding thing in the world, man. Well, and you're living the good life, man, if you go, yeah. if you're, you know, and it doesn't take that much. I was talking to somebody else about this recently, about like what it actually takes if you don't own a fish shack, but to go to Southeast Alaska on like a very... Yeah you know, purpose-driven trip to be like, okay, we want to like bring home a bunch of salmon and whatever else we can catch and, and whatnot. And you could probably do it for not that. It's, it's not exorbitant, you know? You don't go stay at a fancy fishing lodge. No, you market value, you're going to end up ahead of the game. Yeah. With, with the with the. But again, I feel like the exercise of it and, and the act of it, I mean, that's like really enriching your life. You're yeah. doubling down, right? I mean, you're simultaneously paying for your food and your recreation yeah. with the same dollar. So. That's the funny thing that the conversation I have is that people are like, well, you ever imagine what that costs per pound? It's like, okay, let's figure out. You just went to Paris. You didn't bring shit home to eat from Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that cost? It's like, what's that cost per pound? It's like, at least, like if you play golf, no one's like, well, what what that cost per unit? It's like you don't even have a thing to begin measuring. They don't even factor in their beers. At least I got 20 pounds of fish where you can begin having the conversation about something I got home for it. But no one presses a golfer every time he walks in to justify his outing based on what he brought home with him. Yeah. He didn't bring home anything with him except that he like, lost two golf balls. Yeah. So like, don't bust his balls. <laughs> about what it's cost them. But you go out and like bring a fish and be like, well, yeah, but what did it cost you per pound? I was like, what'd you do today? <laughs> like, what do you have to show for what you did today? At least I got something. Yes. And that is, I, I think that's the root of like my hesitation when, cause, and I'm sure you guys have been there too. Like, we got a lot of guys, you know, you're kind of like, hey, catching up. And I'm like, man, yeah, I'm fretting because I got this going on and this going on. And well, hey, man, I got, I got a bunch of elk in the freezer. So don't don't worry about it if you don't make it out. I was like, yeah, I don't want to eat your elk, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know I want to be out there doing it more than anything. So oh, there's yeah, there's that aspect of it, man. Is like I wouldn't. 
it's fun for me to cook for my family and it's fun for me to cook for my friends. It's fun for me to cook for myself because like we went and got it. Yeah. That's the value. I would not do the things I do if it wasn't that way. I would never be like all excited to cook something I bought at Whole Foods for people. The way I get all excited to be like, check that out, man. Because it's a damn mountain lion. <laughs> it's, it's directly tied to the experience every single time. You know, yeah, we were talking earlier. You know, you get to yeah. relive that experience and tell yeah. that story. And I'll tell you what, man, I've been digging into that uh, elk from a fog neck, and that's a hell of a story you're telling every time. You're like, yeah, we could have just left the other half there after that incident, but we climbed up in that tree, got the other 400 pounds, and then uh, walked it out of there. That's an intense story. Yeah, I was just telling a story the other day when we were up North Slope, you know. To somebody that has no idea what that's all about and it's just keep reliving it over and over and over you know yeah up caribou hunting yeah yeah meat's long gone now though. meat's long gone stories live on they do andrew did you feel like when you're shoulder to shoulder with uh any of the ranella boys or whoever who's more on the hunting aspect as opposed to somebody who spends each and every day eight ten hours a day in a kitchen do you think you're approaching um any of these cuts the critter itself whatever it may be in in a much different way no i mean hanging out with you guys for years phenomenal the way that you guys cook up some of this stuff you know i mean and you have a nice base knowledge of how because game meat is different than cooking domestic animal i mean it just hands down talking about more fat you're talking about you know the game being a lot leaner so it is it's uh i think it's a great relationship of give and take as far as you guys have such a understanding of how to use the game meat in its proper way where sometimes then maybe i'll come in and 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 put a technique down that's a little fancied up a little bit you know that's the way i look at it like i know like, I think we're learning from each other. Oh, sure. yeah, because I'm not, like, you're a thousand times better, like, you're a thousand times better at cooking and just chefing than I am. What I know is I just have have had a lot of experiences with a lot of different types of game. Yeah. And I kind of know its attributes. Yeah. And know the general, like, approach to take with different parts of different game animals and, like, what sorts of things it could be used for. That's what I know that's not easily replicated unless you've been exposed to the things I've been exposed to. But the actual details of like assembling dishes, yeah, I just don't know like you know. That's why it's fun for me to cook with you. Yeah, and vice versa. Like I'll, I'll be like, you know what's good to do with these loins is you like sear them and throw them in the oven. And then you'll go do that and you'll make a cauliflower puree and pickled right on you know i mean like all the stuff that goes with it, and i'm like now that like holy shit i would never have come up with that but what i did know is that this piece of meat yeah and it's fun tends to be like best when prepared this sort of way it's fun because a lot of times like i'll let you kind of take that lead on how to yeah how to use that particular cut and then i know the technique of how to then take it and elevate it to a different level you know but I think the reason you're such a good uh, ground up, like you're a good chef with seafood, is because of stuff you've been dealt with professionally for a long time. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter. You catch a halibut. Halibut doesn't matter if you caught it or bought it. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. So you can like really learn all about fish the right. way you can't really learn all about what you're looking at when you're looking at a like different three dead deer laying on the woods the you know laying on the ground out in the woods i look at them i'm seeing something that you're only going to see after having had a lot of experience about like what's the difference between all those things laying there yeah but like actually cooking i kind of like i'm not that like i'm not really good at actually cooking yeah you hold your own yeah i mean i can like cook like family style cooking you know but not like restaurant style cooking but see, that's where I think the whole hunting experience came in that got me so excited is because a lot of times in, in commercial kitchens, you're, you're, not, you're not getting whole animals in. You're getting cuts in that, you know, are broken down. You're getting your primals and your subprimals. And, but to actually see the whole animal, especially in its state from, you know, tracking it for days and, and, and being out there in its environment and then to see it on the ground and then start to break down, I, I, I think... Everybody that eats meat should, at some point, see that process. Just to get it. Yeah. I, I find myself stressing, and I was just writing this, actually, in the introduction to our forthcoming Wild Game cookbook. I was writing about, particularly with big game, is I'm always pushing a cut-based approach to cooking wild game, to cooking big game. Because you'll find that you put up like a, you put up a recipe like, here's a great, here's a way to prepare heart. And people are like, oh, I see you had a thing up about elk heart, but do you have a moose heart recipe? I think a lot of hunters tend to like look at, um, they, they stress too much like what the animal is when it's more important to know what part of the animal you're eating. I don't approach, if, if I'm like cooking shank, I don't think differently about an antelope shank a mountain goat shank a whitetail shank a mule deer shank an elk shank a half well half is a little small a wild pig shank i tend to think more like what's more important to me not the animal that it was i don't really care i want to know what it was and all my like my wild game cooking is all based off the cut not like what it is yeah like when you open up a, a big game cookbook and they have like elk recipes and then you go and you flip and oh here's moose recipes i'm like dude there's no difference between an elk recipe and a moose recipe yeah sure there's going to be flavor profile differences i think from meat to meat to meat but i don't think it's to the point where really you need to change the recipe no sure you can adjust it and you might have your favorites but for the most part yeah what you're talking about is knowing how to cook and like you know (laughs) the techniques exactly how to handle these different pieces. And you're right. There are, there are, there's going to be difference between elk and moose, but there's also going to be difference from one moose to the next. Yeah. Yeah. And I so think as much as there's like, that's like special about the wild game that sort of like, you should be like, not instead of trying to cover that up, but you make the same recipe and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, you taste that difference in the caribou mm-hmm. or you taste that difference. Maybe you taste like the willow in the moose and the caribou, you're sort of tasting that lichen or whatever other north slope browse he was eating on and then the white tailed deer you taste like the acorn and the corn and the soybeans well, that's, that's, yeah. that's the, the gmo <laughs> you taste the gmos that's the bridge between the hunter and the chef though right i mean to know all the way back to the environment that you pull that animal out of knowing that the the down the line that the flavor profile is going to be different yeah know? but that stuff that comes like almost after the recipe sure after the method sure. of preparation there are, like, I don't want to oversimplify this because 
let's just say you're talking about like the difference between whitetails and mule deer. Sure, there are fundamental differences between whitetail and mule deer, but those differences might not be as extreme. Those inherent differences might not be as extreme as the difference between one whitetail and another whitetail. Mm-hmm. If you were able to sort of like apply a number system to like quantify differences, a half-starved four-year-old mule deer that just was hung up on a barbed wire fence and got hamstrung by a coyote and then kind of healed up, but he's not doing real well. Like there's that animal. And then there's some two-year-old mule deer that's been hanging out in an alfalfa field. Those are very different animals. The difference between those two things is so much more extreme than the difference between a whitetail and a mule deer. Right. It's just like, so that's all after the fact. I just think that like in cooking, you got to learn like, what is it that you have? Mm-hmm. We when I was a kid, we cut up deer. We cut up deer. We cut up steaks, which included the backstrap, tenderloin, and most of most, like the the rounds and sirloins from the back legs, and then the rest was burger, unless we made jerky. So we would get done, and it, all that whole damn deer would say two things: steaks, burger. That was how I was brought up to cut deer. I now have a much more nuanced approach to it. Sure. And that just comes from experience, right? The willingness to have ex- the willingness to have experiences. Mm-hmm. There are many, many people out there that, and I still uh, hang out with some that it's like, no, that's the way you do it: steaks and burgers. Yeah, it's like there is no what's the difference. There is no difference. Like I eat hamburger helper. It all goes into Hamburger Helper. I'd rather some dude be eating his whole deer as Hamburger Helper than some dude sort of watching it in his freezer uneasily feeling kind of like vaguely guilty about it for three years, waiting for when he gets to go pitch it because it's freezer burned. Dude, I don't look down on any kind of cooking. As long as it's wild game cooking. I'm open to it all. Put You want to throw one last plug in? How do folks find you? <laughs> well, at this point, we're kind of kind of on a small small level up there on the island, and I don't yeah, because you anyway, got your main chef and job. Yeah, yeah. So that the the, the the catering is just kind of a side project. Yeah, but it's fun, and people oh, would yeah. love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. If you want to hire a guy that you can actually hang out with and learn a thing or two from, yeah, yeah, instead of some dingbat caterer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, summertime is kind of the high season up there, and if anybody's talking about uh, San Juan Island, so it's it's a small population of people, so it's it's kind of a kind of a tight little community, but it's also a, a pretty popular destination for tourists. So there are a fair a bit of events up there that get uh, the need for catering. So yeah, on island time catering, and right now we're just kind of getting it off the ground. So if you went to the uh, Chamber of Commerce, you'd find us pretty easy. And the other thing is, if you ever have, if you hunt and fish, and ever wanted to have someone come and do small party events, where someone who has really has the know how comes and shows you just what is possible. Mm-hmm. with your stuff could, could take that boring old venison steak and how to like it. really do amazing stuff with with your wild game for you and your friends um I, I would i would i would i would look them up too 
Also, I believe uh, he's my favorite cook. He's uh, single as well. So, like, <laughs> and he's single. Yeah, yeah I out. finally get to do it to somebody else. And he's <laughs> single. And he's available <laughs> from one single guy to another. <laughs> the most eligible bachelor of San- of the Pacific. Let's just expand it to the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Perfect for that. The lady's most lunch. charismatic eligible bachelor of the Pacific Northwest, who also cooks. Yeah, and if you live closer to the Intermountain Rocky, what, what am I trying to say? The Intermountain Rocky West. Intermountain West, oh, yeah. Go. Cal is available there. Most <laughs> eligible bachelor of the Inter, Inter- Rocky Mountain yeah. West. And I can lift things and carry them. <laughs> oh. uh, do you have a specialty? Like, if... like if He's a, like, sa- he's a saucy A. a. He's a saucy yeah, A. In my man. personal... Endeavors. I mean, in love, in love, you talking about love life? Or <laughs> that one's up to you. You can take it. Whatever. It's called you the want. poop magoot. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I really like cooking seafood a lot. Um, you live on an island out in the ocean, yeah, and it's just so delicate. And then, and if it's handled right, man, it's just so good. Um, Anything in particular in the seafood world? Well. I think just out of the fact that I end up with a lot of it every year is 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 the big the heavy hitters this you know halibut salmon prawns lingcod lingcod and I think pound for pound lingcod stands up against anything I think it's one of my favorite fish. Um, but if I, also, I could only eat one fish the rest of my life, and they told me it had to be lingcod, I'd be like, cool, yeah, that's cool, bro. Yeah, if it's done right, it's it's it stands up against just about anything. Wow. But, uh, yeah, you know, I also like kind of just doing the fun projects, uh, making sausage, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, just putzing around the house and having a big cut of meat in the, in the smoker or, or raising something down. Those are those are fun days to be able to just kind of have a leisurely pace at it and play play with something all afternoon, you know. And then be able to, like I said a few times, but be able to share it. That's my biggest thing is to lucky enough to that it is my profession but it's to be able to share those experiences and, and have people actually enjoy you know what i've produced you make a million little masterpieces that disappear right i think about you know the whole span of my career it's like there ain't nothing left it's all yeah. gone every time <laughs> every time you think about architecture you think about you know people that build stuff and it's artists that hangs for a million years Every day you're building tiny little masterpieces that might take you three, four weeks and just snap like that. It's gone. You know? I never really thought about it that way, but, but you're right. But, but when you're, you're doing kidding. like you're like eight step duck pastrami and oh. all of a sudden it's just gone, you're like, yeah. son of a bitch. Yeah. And there's sometimes that, I, sometimes <laughs> that I covet things that I almost don't want to, you know, like like that, that the perfect stock that, you know, that I made one a couple weeks ago. Just this, it was a beef stock, but then I cooked it. I mean, it was days and days and days. And I got this thing down to a demi gloss where I started with 12 gallons and I got it down to just, you know, <laughs> a cup full and I, and I just like covered it i didn't want to use it for anything because it was like this is a masterpiece in itself but that's where the reward is 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 seeing people that that you know that enjoy it because it is it's gone every day you do it and it's gone i'm going through that right now where i have two pieces of sable fish in my mm-hmm. freezer and you just want a whole lot and i like fish? black cod oh okay and i like knowing they're in my freezer more than i like eating them mm-hmm. 
because I like eating them so much. Yeah. I like knowing they're in there. And I find myself like, I catch myself opening my freezer and staring at my two big pieces of sable fish. <laughs> being like, fellas should probably eat them. They ain't getting better. <laughs> they ain't getting better in there, you know. But then you, you're just you're just waiting for the perfect scenario, right? Yeah. You're waiting for the right people to come over and the right preparation on it to, to make them. No, I got a plan for them. Yeah. I got a plan for them. It's called lunch today, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got my uh, my brothers and their wives and whatnot are coming for Christmas. Right. Coming for Christmas. Yeah. Yanni, anything to add? Closing thought. Yeah, I was thinking about how. I, oh, can I interrupt you? Yeah. How are you liking that brand spickety new first light? Uh, Lo- loving it. What do you guys call that? A heli? What do they call those things? Henley. 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 Yep. That's that's a sweet piece. Top secret though, isn't it? No, man, we can talk about her now. But uh, did, you wore that Love it. in Colorado, right? Love it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a little bit thicker. It's oh, got some uh, spandex. No, that, that one is 100% wool. Um, the wool on the inside is just fleeced. Oh, is that what it is? Which it's probably is, as thick as a slice of bread, Matt. Love that thing. Though. It's uh, it's little little <laughs> old school wool technology that we stole from uh, the uh, Swedish military. I think. Oh yeah, now you're good. Five percent? That's nothing. That's just you're right, yeah. Day. You were well, no, yeah. but I think the, it the, it serves a purpose. You guys didn't put it in there for shits and giggles. Oh, you got squid ink on this thing? No, my kids were painting ornaments the other day and then showing them <laughs> to me, and I didn't know I didn't know that they had just finished painting the ornaments, and so I've got paint on my phone and obviously on this shirt too. Okay, yeah, I, I, correction. The the this new Henley uh, is a, a I think four hundred weight merino. And there's five percent spandex in there because one thing that we dislike from tromping in the woods with pure merino is how it kind of bags out on the sleeves. Yeah. Uh, over the course of a week. You know? Yeah. Do you feel like it's going to help in the durability too? Yeah. 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 So it's got just a little more like spring, a little more snap to it, where you feel like yeah, yeah. it's not going to get that sort of like loose bagging. You don't want to run home and wash it so it puckers back up again. Yeah. Right. That's what I call it is the, the repucker. The repucker. Yeah. And, it, you know, a big thing that, I mean, you guys do for us, and, and I try to get as many days in myself, is, is trying to explore the new items um, and and see if they're actually doing the things that we want them to do in the field. Because uh, they're just, you can't recreate that stuff. This thing's but, killing it for podcasting and Steve's chili garage it's just perfect podcast and outfit man mm-hmm. yeah you know and it's how do you test that you have a so podcast guys do a marathon sash yeah yeah i get poot down here and start going on it kelly got any oh yeah did you get Can a chance I get, oh i, I, I interrupted you to ask you about your shirt yeah yeah i was admiring how attractive time you, getting, how attractive you look over we're there getting close to being out of time but um you're talking about how you try to eat a bunch of fish during fishing or right after fishing season and sort of you know, by this time of year, now it's like late fall. You're sort of getting over eating fish, right? Because you've been eating a whole bunch of. So I don't fish. like to leave it in my freezer as long yeah. as like I, red meat. I just leave in there forever, but yeah. I don't like I like to. But I've had the same thing happen with red meat. You know, like where I just had like the main thing in my freezer. I had like two elk. You know, and I maybe had another whatever. But for most part, I've just been eating elk and elk and elk and elk. And for us, that really like to eat only wild game. You you can't you can definitely get bored where you're like man just 
just need something to switch it up. And I was thinking about that, and the answer is to be like the Stephen Ranella generalist haunter. Yes. And like this year, I'm like, all right, kind of had it in my head. I put it out there to the universe. I was like, I need some ducks. <laughs> then my buddy calls. He's like, dude, you want to go duck hunting? I got a sweet spot. So we roll in, boom, some ducks. So I've got like 10 ducks in my freezer. Critical. You'll find that Giannis talks about putting something out to the universe. And what that means <laughs> is he feels as though... Um, if you're thinking about it, it's kind of like a Lavian. Uh, it's not Lavian. It's Lavian <laughs> metaphysics. <laughs> is that just by letting it, just feeling away, and letting people know away that you uh, a yeah, thing that you desire? It, uh, is it personal manifestation? People use that. They throw that term. Yeah. So it. Yanni's like, by he just exudes a feeling of wanting ducks. Uh-huh. And if he exudes that strong enough, the phone will ring. And it, in this case, it did. And he now has a whole bunch of ducks. <laughs> buddy, and now you got a sack full my, of squid. My buddy uh, Miller uses that for uh, work. When Work's he needs work? really slowing down. He's sort of like, he's like, hey, universe needs some work. Bring <laughs> 10,000 square feet, Yin. Um, he's, a, he's, a tile, he's a tile guy. So 10,000 square foot house. There's a lot of tile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of dial. But yeah, that's really helped me for like keeping on the 100% while a game, you know, menu and being excited about it is like having some fish, some squirrels, some rabbits, some ducks, some elk. The generalist hunter mm-hmm. and angler is a well-fed mofo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people like to Variety. only be like the, you know, big game, you know, white, big buck, white tail deer hunter where... You just, you know, expand a little bit, man. It really opens up your menu, diversifies it. You can only stuff so much variety into a sausage casing. Mm-hmm. Cal, you got any final thoughts? I don't have any. Can you guys tackle for me? Just put this thing to bed, my mule deer neck scenario. Oh. I think you can do that in two minutes. I have this a whole mule deer neck. I wanted to wrap it in the call fat. And it's beautiful, big call fat, and roast it on the pellet grill. That's what I intended to do. And I and to give you guys the full story is, um, you know, it was a really tricky, steep spot when I was trying to get that neck out. Uh, a lot of the blood out of the uh, cavity came out and actually like gave the neck a real about half of it a good bloodshot appearance. So I took it home when I got home. And basically just put it in a, a very simple brine. I think I, I just kind of threw some odds and ends in there. But, you know, salt, water was, were the really the main ingredients. So I don't think there's going to be any other leftovers. But now it looks clean and beautiful again. And it's thawing out right now. Took it out before I came here to Seattle. I wouldn't do it the way you're talking about doing it. It would be an experiment. I wouldn't do it that way. I think you could do it in a pellet grill. The neck. But I wouldn't wrap it up in anything. I would do it in a pellet grill and be basting the living daylights out of that thing. But think of the loss of heat on the pellet grill, though. That's I'm saying what I would really do with do it. it. And yeah. I would devise a dish, like tacos or something, where I was shaving the neck meat off the outside, the nice smoky neck meat off the outside, and making some, and then shaving some more and making some. If you want to have it, you're going to serve that whole damn neck you're going to need to braise that neck down. And you're going to need to take that neck and sear it on, like, give it a good rub. Get a gigantic pan, 
sear the whole thing all over the place, put it in a giant pot with a tight-fitting lid, and put it in your oven at 300 degrees for a ton of hours or in a slow cooker until you can pick it. Because you feel like it's just going to dry out on the, it's not on the grill? Gonna it needs, it needs a moist method for sure. It's not going to be tender. You could almost do it in reverse like if you did the moist method first so if you braised it to where you're almost getting to like you're talking about the ribs where it's still gonna hold together but it's it's tender and then put it into a smoker or a grill where then you could kind of infuse a little bit of that smoky flavor oh, and that and is called the poot magoo <laughs> and there, that's that's now you're thinking that's a good idea pooter and yeah. there if you wrapped it in a call yeah yeah, then that's just going to melt. Right it would melt, there. but it would also, if you were getting too tender and it was starting to fall apart, it would act as hold it. Because I don't no, think I can put talking. it in. I don't think I can get it in the oven. Because I mean, this it, it is a it's a hmm. got to be a fifteen pound. Mm. Even if you took, uh, you know what you need is one of those little uh, electric roasting ovens. I do need a roasting oven. I might have one. I could send. You. Even if you took yeah. a rack out, you couldn't get it. In a pan in there, maybe. Maybe I could, but I wouldn't have. It wouldn't be a, a pan that has a lid at that point. Aluminum foil, Weston, Weston yeah. electric roaster, sealed tightly as you can. All right, you think that's the way to go, mm-hmm. Andrew? Braise it, braise it until it's just right there. And then pull it out if you want to infuse that flavor. Then, then you could almost let it cool till it, till you could work it. Wrap in your call. Give it a put, good rub down, and then put it on your. I'd rub it down with. At a minimum, salt and pepper, maybe even something a lot zippier. Because this then is a visual that thing, right? Up. Yeah, it's no. a visual because I want that Fred Flintstone mega roast. Is yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think Poot's idea. But you'd island have, time, bro. You'd have to pull it out before before it falls apart. Just kind of like you're saying with the ribs. Yeah, because yeah. then you won't. Because when I cook those necks down, I, what I cook a neck down is you cook it down and make like barbecue sandwiches with. Me it. too. Yeah, I'll cook it down until it looks like. You could shake that neck and a bunch of vertebrae fall out of there. It looked like something out of a museum. Yeah. I mean, you can cook it down to where that meat, where you can just grab off fistfuls of meat off that neck rolls. Right. So don't let that happen. Uh, what, what did I just ask? About how to cook your neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I was paying attention right. All right. I, I think I got it. You good? You think you'd go call fat then? Or just sure, save not? that for something else? All right. No, why not? Yeah, give her a shot. It'd be fun. All right, eat your deer meat. Eat all kinds of meat. Let's take care of it first. Cook it nice. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.